Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malinowski Lecture for this year. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Judith Schieler, uh, who's going to be talking on state like and state dislike in the anthropological margins. Uh, I first met Judith about, probably about 10 years ago now, when she came to do a Friday seminar. So now she's been promoted to Malinowski <laughs> Lecture. And that Friday seminar was fantastic, and she's moved on to even greater things. Um, she has been for two years at the Centrum Moderne Orient in, in Berlin, and she's moving to France to the EHESS, which I won't try to say in French, in Marseille. And she showed me in her bag, just, as she, just before she left, um, her new book came out, The Value of Disorder. And before that, she published two books. She's a prolific publisher. First one was Smugglers and Saints of the Sahara, Regional Connectivity in the 20th Century. That was 2012. Oh, sorry, and before that, Village Matters, Knowledge, Politics and Community in Kabila, Algeria. That was 2009. So she's a very prolific author, and we're going to be very, very pleased to share her, her insights into um, all her research tonight. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me back to Edis Eofidis and, and for promoting me. Um, on top of that, I, I feel very honored to be here. There is at the heart of Malinowski's political anthropology a deep suspicion of anything larger than individual self-interest managed through reciprocity. Crime and custom in savage society is a pamphlet to refute the orthodoxy of his days, he says himself, which according to him postulated primitive communism among what he called the natives, and the idea that natives mindlessly follow custom. This might be, as he puts it, a Bolshevik paradise, but it had no grounding in reality. Instead, he says, natives follow custom because it is in their enlightened self-interest to do so. Um, their social behavior, he writes, is based on a well-assessed give and take, always mentally ticked off and in the long run balanced, motivated by keen self-interest in watchful reckoning. Every transaction is justified as a link in the chain of mutuality. End of quote. This mutual reciprocity invokes all of life, he says, and we all know it as the Kula. The Kula, in fact, for him is politics, and crime and customs is really just a footnote to the argument. Malinowski is quite adamant that this chain of mutualities is accidental. The system as a system, very much like the Kula as a ring, is beyond the grasp of the natives. I quote, the natives obey the forces and commands of the tribal code, but they do not comprehend them. The regularities in native institutions are an automatic result of the interaction of the mental forces of tradition and the material conditions of the environment. This, Malinowski continues, makes them in fact more rather than less like um, what he named modern man. I quote again, exactly as a humble member of any modern institution, whether it be the state or the church or the army, is of it and in it, but has no vision of the resulting integral action of the whole still less could furnish any account of its organization, so it would be futile to question a native in abstract sociological terms. Now, Malinowski is rarely cited among the founding fathers of political anthropology, and his own politics are perhaps better left alone. Similarly, his attempt to found all social interaction on reciprocity was deemed unsatisfactory by Leach, at least, almost as soon as it was published. But the problem he describes is real and arguably lies at the heart of the anthropological enterprise. 
how do we describe institutions that are larger than individual experience without falling in the traps of sociological essentialism? How can people form institutions that are, do not fully comprehend if this is in, indeed what is happening? How do these institutions survive over time and breed, as it were, through space? This difficulty is particularly evident in political anthropology, where an earlier focus on institution has, since the 1980s, almost totally lost out to a focus on power relations in everyday practice. One result of this is that the most dominant institution of our everyday lives, the modern nation state, um, both seems to have moved center stage, <coughs> still study stateless societies, very, very few people do, um, and become at the same time oddly unfathomable. The state is everywhere, but we can't actually quite see it or grasp it. Indeed, the notion of the state has become so diluted that in their recent book on kings, Marshall Stalins and David Greber can claim both that the state is the original political society and that it is a shop-worn concept. Now, this might just be disagreement among co-authors, but I think um, this apparent contradiction might encourage us to look for conceptual alternatives. And the best forward, I think, is to um, blatantly ignore Malinowski's advice and indeed to question natives in abstract terms um, to pay heed to local or rather regionally constituted political ideas, both to ideas that seem to belong to the state and also to those that seem to challenge it. As Bourdieu noted in 1994, the difficulty of studying the state lies precisely in the fact that, like Malinowski's native, we are so much of it and in it that we find it very hard to see beyond it and even to think beyond it. Hence, a renewed interest in political institutions elsewhere institutions both state-like and state-dislike, or somewhere in the middle, might offer a way out of this difficulty. In this lecture, I'm going to draw material from three different field sites that you can see on the map here, and the dates when I was actually there carrying out the main bits of fieldwork. One is Kabilia, a Berber-speaking area in northern Algeria. One, um, primarily the Tuat, but also parts of northern Mali, um, the Tuat is a group of oases right in the middle of the Sahara Desert um, that looks very remote, but in fact used to be central to trans-Saharan trade and in many ways still is today. And finally, northern Chad, um, the main town of northern Chad, Fayalarjo. When I say main town, think large village rather than a main town. Uh, not very many people live up there. Um, I refer to these field sites um, not totally seriously in the title of my lecture as the anthropological margins for two reasons. On the one hand, these areas, and I think most of MENA, have been strikingly absent from kind of the current anthropological debate on political anthropology, and indeed from kind of what we might consider current uh, anthropological um, orthodoxy. And two, these areas have for a very long time been on the edge of state formations, centuries before anthropology was first invented. Um, they have been marginal or rather remote in Ardna sense, meaning that they have been sitting on the edge of state formations, looking at them, and I think hence um, provide interesting perspectives of what a state might actually be and what it might not be. So let us start with the first field site, Kabilia, in northern Algeria. So when in 2002 I decided to carry out fieldwork in Kabilia, a Berber-speaking area of northern Algeria, I was primarily attracted by the region's political effervescence pictured here, so these are pictures taken from Kabilia, um, not elsewhere. As far as I could tell from afar, a grassroots political movement based on local tribes, Arash, um, in Kabil, the word itself is derived from Arabic, and village councils was durably challenging the central government, 
um, meetings were held according to radical democratic principles. It often went on for days so that everybody could express their opinion and nobody was interrupted. The whole region had been cut off from the rest of the country. And despite the traditional labels employed, young men and even sometimes women seemed to be at the forefront of events. The movement's most popular slogan, Olesh Sma Olesh, that you can see on that picture, kind of on the, uh, on the banderol, meaning there's no pardon, meaning there's no pardon for those who had been killed by the police in the protest, implied the movement's ambition to deal with the central government on equal terms. This is um, incidentally a slogan that has been revised in Algeria now and was part of the protests that have finally managed to oust the Algerian, former Algerian president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, last month. Um, in 2001, the excitement was relayed on the internet and among Kabyle associations in Paris, and there are very many of those. There are probably as many Kabyles living in France as in Kabyle. Um, at a closer look, things were more complicated, as they always are. Um, the institutions involved had been tarnished, as it were, by earlier colonial interest. Locally, the Arash were not seen as traditional, but in some, but not all cases, as little more than a bunch of hooligans, uh, as people put it locally, the specialists de la caste, the specialists of breaking things. Um, they themselves reciprocated by accusing the more established village assemblies of acting, I quote, like a mafia, and by calling themselves. You can see here the Mouvement Citoyen des Arches d'Aires et Communes, the citizens' movements of Arches d'Aires et Communes. Arches, as I said, means tribes, Daira and Commune are kind of low-level state and institutive categories, and they're drawing on three different sources of legitimacy in a way. Um, and they also stressed very much their historical legitimacy, hence the quote um, on the slide, which is, uh, taken from a political speech in 2001. He says, people ask, what are the Arash? The Arash on June 14, 1830, got together and sent 25,000 young soldiers to face the French in Sidi's Rush. And uh, this is an important event during French colonization of Algeria, when indeed Kabyles fought the French unsuccessfully, as we all know. This was the beginning of colonization. This is what the Arash are. The Arash on June 14, 2001, there was a mass demonstration in Algiers, returned to Algiers and took 3 million people with them. If the government doesn't listen to us, we will do the same, and there will be even more of us. Towns rather than villages were most prominent in demonstrations, and people's most urgent claim was for the Algerian state to move in, in fact, and provide jobs and services, although people were also keen that the gendarmerie, the military police, the people who had been killing quite a lot of young protesters, uh, move out of the region and ask them to pay compensation money for those killed and wounded. Places more generally were saturated with references to martyrdom, a term that is, in fact, at the heart of the Algerian state's political legitimacy. Um, due to the war of independence of the 1950s and 1960s, which still looms very large in the Algerian political landscape. Um, young men killed during protests were thus interred within, next or in similar monuments to those of the war of independence. Now you can see on the picture here, this is a monument that was built. Oh, this was a monument that was built um, for five people that, five young men shot um, just down the road from the village where I did my field work. And um, the families and friends wanted them to be interred in, within the nationalist monument, which is also a graveyard, and people refused. So they built exactly the same thing right next to it. So there's a, an attempt to claim kind of continual legitimacy. Um, although relations with the Algerian state were this complex, villages in Kabylia did exert some form of sovereignty which was not just reducible to state mandate, and in fact, they did not have a state mandate and still don't. Um, the village where conducted field work had not one, but two opposing assemblies. They managed their own water and electricity supplies and built some of the roads. Few people ever paid taxes. The meeting place of the old assembly that in the past was supposed to have governed the village independently had been rebuilt with village funds. 
um, repainted in the national colors, and the kind of outline was an attempt, more or less, to mirror the national parliament of Algeria. Um, the other picture is a picture of a more um, traditional village assembly held outside in a neighboring village in 2003. People held state jobs, but any state agent who was not from the village, any stranger, in fact, was spotted on arrival and would be able to do, I quote, nothing. Um, so the way villagers talked about politics was that the prefect would call them if they needed their help and then they would travel to Bijayahans bypassing all kind of intermediate administrative levels um, and they would be received by him immediately. Even whoever else was there, he, they would go first because they were important. He never lost his weight. And then things would be managed without any state official ever actually going on village territory. Um, the village assembly or assembly still issued laws and levied fines and people usually paid those. Three state-appointed imams have been thrown out of the village within days because they misbehaved. And you have to remember, this is Algeria 2001. Three years prior, we were still in the dark decades of the 1990s. Islam um, was a moot point at that time and was seen to be a threat. Occasionally, they, this sovereignty could be projected beyond the village. The village assembly, in collaboration with its counterparts in the wider Arch, effectively blocked the restitution by the national government of land in the valley of several thousand hectares of very valuable land in the valley to its former colonial owner by quite simply burning any construction that was made on it. I mean, this is something that is ongoing. Um, so the man tries to sell the land and whoever buys the land builds a house and the house is not going to last very long, usually one night. If this was violent, it was considered region-wide as certainly legitimate violence. Village assemblies then still mattered in a way that narratives of invented traditions can't account for. Nor did the Algerian state make any sense locally, at least as it appeared in Kabylia, um, if you study it apart from those non-state institutions. Yet if you read the most famous ethnographer on Kabylia, Pierre Bourdieu, whose field site was just across the valley from mine, you would never have thought so. Although Bourdieu sparingly acknowledges the existence of assemblies, they, like the law codes they produce, were for him mostly the result of, in his words, the orchestrated improvisations of common dispositions, almost instinctive collective expressions of subconscious agreements, again a quote, practices regulated without express regulation or any institutionalized call um, to order. And that's what Bourdieu needed today. Um, the context of Bourdieu's fieldwork, the Algerian War of Independence, might not have been conducive to public expressions of politics of any kind, but still, I think this also showed a very clear lack of interest. He was just interested in other things. Um, and he was not the only one to do so. So Outline of the Theory of Practice was published in 1972, translated into English five years later, and it was a precursor of things to come. Malinowski's problem, the existence of institutions beyond individual action and perhaps even understanding, was now internalized, condensed into habitus. Simultaneously, interest shifted decisively from the stateless to the state. By the early 2000s, the anthropology of political systems had thus largely been replaced by the anthropology of the state. Note the shift from the plural to the singular. The state was now everywhere. Quote, it is impossible to think of political systems in the contemporary world as inhabiting any form of stateless society, wrote Dustin Poole in 2004. They were echoed by Murray Lee in 2005. There's no spatial beyond of the state. But the problem was that the further anthropology advanced in the direction of the state, the faster it seemed to recede. By 2003, Arad Sherger could just conclude that difficulty in studying the state resides in the fact that the state, this unified political subject or structure, does not exist. 
It is a collective illusion, the reification of an idea that masks real power relations under the guise of public interest. As Arit Shaga noted herself, this echoes Radcliffe Brown, which would make one always a little bit suspicious, um, but I'm not sure that Malinowski himself would have approved. Would this not also imply that by extrapolation there was no such thing as a cooler rain, only cooler? Perhaps it is an anthropological law of this one that the more anthropologists look at something, the less clear it becomes. But the answer is unsatisfactory, especially, I think, at a time when there is an interest out there for a different kind of political commentary. Um, deep history is fashionable again. You can probably all think of examples, not among anthropologists, it must be said, but among the um, elusive uh, thing that is called the educated reading public. Um, the emergence of the state plays an important role in these accounts. Closer to home, um, we have very popular books by James Scott or perhaps even David Gerber's Death. What is interesting about these books, I think, is on the one hand that they're extremely popular and sell very, very well. On the other hand, that they tend to get poo-pooed by their colleagues. Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed has been described as a postmodern history of nowhere, this is a quote, um, and as vaguely the more vicious attacks. Both Scott and Greber, moreover, are criticized for mostly writing for a Western audience of college students, which um, you might note implies that they have an audience, um, against something that everybody knows and for nothing in particular. Now, it is true with Scott, at least, minus the state, people in his non-state spaces in what he calls Zonia mostly seem to revert to their own specificity and thought Matisse, something that Malinowski would have called enlightened self-interest or even worse, instinct. And while we know by the end of the book that states are generally bad news, we know very little about alternative political imaginations or even, God beware, institutions or why some people might have wanted states in the first place. Nor do we get the sense of Zomia as a region held together by anything other than a state refusal, which as a ne negative description doesn't get us very far. The question hence of whether the Chinese war was built to keep the barbarians out or the peasants in, or both and neither, becomes purely ideological. The question of statehood, however, is never just academic. Since Kaplan's essay, Becoming Anarchy, which was published in 1994, um, and has kind of set up a, a, a new generation of poli-sci approaches to African studies, um, but described the future of Africa as a dystopia of state collapse um, following IMF and post-structural adjustment, um, and that would threaten Euro-American security, hence actually interested the European public, the label failed state, or whatever polite term has come to replace it now, um, has real political effects on the ground. Um, and I put up a quote here. A trouble, um, as the leading US general put it in 2004, comes from ungoverned places. Um, note the conflation, by the way, of the idea of statehood and the idea of governance that has become very familiar to us and uh, something I think we should think about very carefully. Um, the idea of a failed state is, of course, a performative statement. For a state to be failed or failing, very often it's quite enough to be large and African. Um, and living in a failed state means that um, you are part now of what you could call the drone zone. It means that actually it can happen to you that you might just get killed just because you happen to be in the wrong place and look slightly the way you should not look. You can be killed indeed arbitrarily to paraphrase the gambling. In these areas, moreover, the, moreover in the failed state areas, the, the belts that you can see on the map, Non-state institutions have suddenly become very visible again. Um, again, in policy speak, that's called they have re-emerged, um, assuming that they have been kind of hiding like under the water. Sometimes over areas larger than states themselves or, or 
with their borders. This is not, you might be surprised, led too much anthropological enthusiasm. Instead, as the recent state of the art of Middle East anthropology concludes, I quote, tribal social organization has practically vanished as a topic of concern for scholars, though not for policymakers, right-wing analysts, and anthropologists embedded with the US military, not to company any self-respecting anthropologist would like to see. Stateless and state-like then has not the same moral value everywhere, just compare the idea of the new social movements to the resurgence of tribalism. Uh, why this should be so, I think, is a question we should keep at the back of our minds throughout. More generally, the Middle East and North Africa, as I've pointed out, have been largely absent from recent debates on statehood and from the key texts of contemporary political anthropology. On Kings, which has the merit of returning to fundamental political questions, covers more or less all of the world, with a penchant for the marginal and the pre-modern, but not one single example discussed is drawn from the Middle East or North Africa, which indeed is neither marginal nor pre-modern. This is striking not just because of the contemporary political relevance of the region, but also because of its history. This is, after all, where the state has, is supposedly has first emerged and has existed for centuries alongside complex non-state institutions, most famously but not exclusively tribes. Both tribes and states here are so old as to play havoc with any theory of social or political evolution by which tribes beget states and states beget modernity. Instead, the two function together without one ever subsuming the other. All we can say at the end is that they produce different forms of history, um, just caricature slightly, one unified and centralized, one fragmented and segmentary, different forms of equality and hierarchy, and different but mutually comprehensible claims to moral excellence. Questions of power, meanwhile, were sometimes neither here nor there. So we have examples of states that have astonishing longevity if you look at particular historical moments, they had no power whatsoever. They were protected by the tribes themselves. And that does not curtail in any sense their idea of continuity or indeed their idea of legitimacy. We find a similar distinction throughout Northwest Africa, where it tends to be expressed, perhaps wrongly so, in geographical terms. In pre-colonial times, the Vilada al-Maksim, the land of the government in Morocco, was thus opposed to the Vilada al-Siba, its opposite. The Vilada al-Velik to the Vilada al-Barud in Algeria, Barud means gunpowder, and the Vilada al-Turk to the Vilad al-Arab in Tunisia, Turks are the Ottomans in this matter. Let us have a look at uh, the first opposition which also had sway in much of southern Algeria where my second year site is situated. So these are actually incidentally quotes taken from um, Bourdieu's own collection of Giza. They're not taken from the south or from the north, but I think they kind of express the idea of the, 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 the orderly maxim um, here brought about by the French as opposed to the traditional um, village clustered around its own center. The Arabic word maxim, which has given us the French magasin, um, literally means a money box. Here it refers to public treasury. Allegiance to the maxim was expressed through the payment of taxes and through an oath of allegiance, which was called the bayah or mubayah, which is a word um, derived from the Arabic root meaning to sell. So it implies some kind of uh, idea of reciprocity. The Vaya is, is based on prophetic pre precedence, so hence legitimate beyond any doubt. Allegiance was conceived to be personal, but practically that was not possible. What happened is that groups within the countryside especially would step forward. There were people known to represent larger groups. And I think that matters because what we have then is a very different image of power. We don't have a state constituting its subjects one by one, but we have an assumption of pre-existing political institutions that are federated by a kind of central power, central money box, if you like. 
and the money box in fact acted to receive taxes, to hand out cash and presents, or to act as an arbiter. But the assumption is there that people are of their nature, if you like, already politically constituted. Um, and those institutions that send representatives were those that actually managed the governance, both of the Vilad al-Mahsan and of the Siba. The Mahsan collected taxes in armed expeditions, mahlat, that was necessary because people rarely kind of showed up to pay up by themselves. Those mahalat could involve up to 12,000 people, last several months, and cost quite as much as they brought in. So the idea of just collecting these didn't quite work. Their respective pills of sovereignty, but they also implied that the legitimate Mahsan was a Mahsan of war conducting what they called internal jihad, so, uh, which is both a military and a missionary activity. So they're bringing about a better world through violence, if you like. Um, the Mahsan was literally fed on the Siba, both in terms of the wealth it ate and handed out, um, but also in terms of legitimacy. No Siba, no Mahsan, if you like. The Sultan, however, thought the Mahsan was also bearer of Baraka, of blessing, of a kind of life-giving force. And that was so because he was a descendant of the Prophet, the Sharif. And the Prophet brings in God's Baraka and it can then be passed down through genealogy. Uh, hence, he also made the production of wealth possible in the first place. He was hence rapacious and infinitely generous at the same time. Although, as um, the Moroccan historian Laroui put it, the sums at the end never quite um, added up. The Siva exists within the very fabric, fabric of the Mahsan. The latter always takes and gives nothing back, at least not to those who pay. The Vlad al-Siba, meanwhile, was governed by local assemblies of the kind whose modern successors are encountered in Sicilia. Now, here's a selection of them. These could be found at all levels of social organization, attaching to villages, town quarters, tribes, tribal federations, subsections of tribes, but also to non-permanent settlements such as markets or storehouses. And indeed, the first picture there is taken in the 1920s in southern Morocco of a collective storehouse. And you have to think of these as something looking a little bit like a castle, but people don't live in it. People can buy a room where they can keep their harvest and other valuables. And everybody who has bought a room is part of, uh, it's a member of the assembly, which then in turn writes laws and keeps laws to kind of govern the whole space. And the space is seen as the harma, as a kind of sacred space. Um, their offenses carry very heavy fines. Um, next to this, there's a page from a notebook from an assembly from southern Algeria uh, from 1962. So this is a permanent settlement called the Tsar, a fortified settlement. Most of the notebook is about the management of irrigation. This is a hyper-arid area. If there's no irrigation, you can't survive, hence this really matters. But there still is a very striking emphasis, as you can see on this page, on money being dispersed, in this case for the maintenance of irrigation, but also money handed in. So we have entries that say so-and-so put this amount of money into the money, money box of the assembly, for instance. And this seems to be most of what they're doing. Um, lastly, the countryside was also dotted with the religious strongholds, as that why you have different scales. So we can think of these as a settlement with a kind of spiritual addition put to it. And the only difference in architecture is very often that they were whitewashed rather, rather than brown. And they also had their own treasure boxes, land holdings, slaves, and irrigation. They were centers of wealth and centers of wealth distribution. Um, I put up the somewhat confusing map to show you how you should never think, especially of the Zawawiyah in isolation, they're always by their very existence referred already to a network of in this sense, both wealth and people and um, baraka, blessing. Um, these networks were expressed through movement, but also through genealogy. So you have the idea here, um, the network on the map is the Aulad Sidi Sheikh, uh, a kind of religious family from northern Algeria, where the big stars, and they then moved through the Sahara, setting up in green Zawaya, in red um, kind of irrigated agricultural villages, and in yellow trading posts. And what is important is that these always stayed 
uh, in touch students with the circulation of wealth, but they're also in people's minds. This is really what makes a settlement, is the fact that you can draw on wealth from elsewhere, on people from elsewhere, and come from spiritual blessing from elsewhere. So these are not isolated places ever. Many of these saints claim to be descendants of the prophet, um, so their baraka was in fact derived from prophetic descent, just like the sultan, which as the wealth in their coffers was all wealth that could have been given to the sultan but was not. It's kind of the same amount that is shared out in different ways. Moroccan historians have long debated the extent to which Zawaya could be considered miniature Mahsan and the Mahsan giant Zawiya, but this doesn't really concern us here. What I'm interested in is the recurrence of very similar patterns on different levels. At the end, the distinction between the Mahsan and the Siva appears to be one of scale or density rather than essence. It is also, however, a moral distinction. This is of very important locally, I think. The Siva can mean many things, but it also means uh, jahiliya, pre-Islamic ignorance. It meant a place where Islamic law doesn't really apply because the Islamic, proper Islamic institutions aren't there. So if you live in the Siva, even if you do everything right and you follow Islamic law as much as you can, it doesn't quite count because it's not legitimized by, say, a sultan-appointed Qadi or by a, a Sharia court. Now, people in the Siva were aware of that, and they didn't want to stay where they were. They tried to pull themselves out of the, the Siva, so to say. And um, they did that usually by spending a lot of money on it. And we have um, a lot of accounts of these village assemblies sitting in the middle of the Algerian Saharas managing the irrigation system and managing daily affairs and putting a lot of effort into paying schools, paying cardies, paying scribes, paying paper, which was very expensive at the time, financing a religious elite that could just sit there and be idle and kind of compose fatwas. We have huge fatwa collections from the area. And that could try very hard to kind of bring in local life into the categories of the Sharia. For assemblies at the same time, this meant losing a lot of the influence over local assets. If you're familiar with Islamic law, the whole law of inheritance and of sales is very individualized. There's no way of protecting communal property. And we have, in fact, a lot of legal opinions of traders who go into the Sudan, which is now Mali, who get married and then their children actually inherit water rights in the Sahara, which is not, not very practicable if, if you live in that part of the world. Um, assemblies hence handed over a lot of wealth in order to curtail their own sovereignty, which makes no sense in terms of power, but it does make a lot of sense in terms of collective moral ambition. The real crux of the matter, however, was that in order for Islamic law to apply properly, they needed to have a sultan, or rather what they needed is an imam, an un unfallible, a spiritual and political guide. Now, they didn't have one, and the way they got around that, I think, is quite interesting. It was mostly through legal opinions produced locally, and this is one of them, a kind of central one. Um, we have the question about the General Assembly. It appoints who judges between them. Um, are they, i.e. the Assembly, like the representatives of the Imam? So the Imam, as I said, is an infallible spiritual guide. Um, this is a reference that goes back to the 12th century Al-Muhad, radically jihadi Al-Muhad empire in the region. Um, and it's interesting as much as an imam is always right, but that also means it has to be a perfect person and there are not very many of these around generally. Um, so are they like a representative of the imam or an assembly of the just and the learned, or is he the judge appointed a hakim rather than a qadi, so not properly um, an Islamic judge? Um, the answer kind of offers two options. One says, why in the remotest parts of the country and when there's no sultan, the most pious in the country appoint for the position of the imam. This, however, is only possible if there is a suitable candidate. Infallibility is not something that is around very often, so very often there wasn't. And in that case, they say, well, the 
assembly of the Muslims, they themselves can stand in because it's incumbent of them to um, the execution of authorities incumbent on them. So what we then have, or we can at least surmise, that the assembly of the Muslims in practice was actually the assembly of the Tsars, so 20 or 25 men, um, who then, through a kind of scalar slippage, can redefine themselves as the Ummah and manage to redefine, kind of enter their own settlement back into um, civilization. Um, what is more, this legal opinion uniquely relies on the kind of opinions that were quoted at the court of the Mahsan in order to legitimize the Sultan's appointment. The Sultan also claimed to be an Imam, he was also a descendant of the Prophet, although he had very many other titles, this was perhaps the most potent one. The Moroccan pre-colonial state, and this is something that perhaps applies to all states, was based on the concentration of a variety of political principles that were not fully overlapping or coherent, and appealed to different people to varying degrees. Non-recognition thus came in layers, as did adoption of state features. People in the traps, they wanted an imam, they didn't want a mahsan, they already had a mahsan. They wanted civilization, but not taxation. The law, meanwhile, was never locally contained. Nobody could ever even attempt to encompass Sharia in its mind-boggling complexity. And that means that legitimacy is always already there, but there's always more than one. You can always find a divergent genealogy. You can always pull a book off your shelf to say that the current imam is, in fact, a fraud and that legal opinions voice are wrong. And we, we can see that people travel quite far to come back and say, actually, what you just said is wrong. Look, so-and-so said um, you got it all wrong and I got it all right. Um, this puts into perspective European-derived notions of statehood, which implicitly posit an overlap between a bounded community, a territory, and a jurisdiction. Mahsan and Siba then are oppositional categories, but they also overlap in parts. They're non-exclusive, layered, and they both exist within the same legal and political system, which is in itself boundless. People within it move from one to the other, um, sometimes quite often, generally over a lifetime. And I think it's important to note that all of the ethnic categories in the area are in fact fundamentally political. So the Kabils I mentioned earlier are Kabail, the tribes people living up in the mountains. Arabs are people who move around, they're nomads. Berbers have given our term um, barbarians. Amazigh, which is a self-description of Berbers, means free people. So you know, these are about political status, about the relative distance of connection to government. And neither of these categories were good things. We have to remember they, neither, of them, ni neither of them were egalitarian. They all had slaves. There were terrible social hierarchies and gender inequalities were rife everywhere else. Um, but these categories were intimately related and mutually defining. They opened different possibilities of action, historical narration, and self-definition to people. Um, but these were always already defined to reference to somewhere else. The Siba did not offer freedom, as we might think about it, but certain templates of action that you could espouse at certain times. Now, if this all sounds very Middle Eastern, let us move to an area that is uh, familiar to all anthropologists, a classical anthropological example. What happens if you treat the Nur and the Dinka and the Shiluk and the Anuak not as different people, but as one larger political system? Many anthropologists have pointed out just how many similarities we have between uh, Dinka and Nur, there are long debates over that, how many similarities between Shiluk and Anuak, for instance. Um, but if you look at all four of them, we can note a recurrence of certain political institutions, forms and language throughout the region. And in the case of the Shilik, seems to have produced a recognizable, to some at least, state, and that of the Nur prophets, and that of the Dinka spear masters, and then that of the Anuak village republics, with an aristocracy moving in, and the term used for aristocracy is the same um, for all four people, Bil. 
All of this in a context of a highly mobile population with a high proportion of slaves, just as in the Sahara, with much value placed on raiding, just as in the Sahara, under pressure by external extractive system, and in the presence of an oppressive state just down the Nile. First the Ottomans and then the British. People knew about states. Again, the state idea was already there. Had Evans Pritchard arrived a century earlier or later, maybe the Nur had a king, would have had a king in the Shiluk prophets. The Nur being enslaved by the Dinka Rat and sold to the Ottoman Sultan. Maybe not. Um, but we know that the Shiluk king, for instance, when people turned up, had only been around for about a century. Um, and had EP turned up at different times, we can be fairly sure that different people would have inhabited those respective categories. State-like and stateless, or non-state is perhaps a better term, then are mutually constitutive to the point where it is the tension between them that seems to matter, and the possibilities it opens to people, rather than the categories on either end, which are ethnographically specific and institutionally similar. Within such a system, questions of morality and self-deception might lead us more closely to politics than those of governance and power. I think this can also explain why some of these non-state institutions can re-emerge at the moment. They, in a sense, piggyback on state institutions, and um, in the same way, states can piggyback on them. This is, I think, what happened to tribes in Libya, for instance, or the assemblies that I spoke about in Nigeria. Conversely, in Northwest Africa, these states latently exist throughout the sea, but the state idea is always already there. It's in the Islamic texts. And there are historical examples of this, but we can look at the more recent one, namely the Islamic State of Azawad, or more exactly the Emirate, the Imara, um, that was proclaimed in northern Mali for uh, almost a year in 2012 before the French military intervened and put a stop to this, more or less. Um, this state was clearly a hybrid, in that it was consciously set up in the modern world of nation states, partly by secessionist, ethnic, more or less Tuareg movement that had been active in the region since the 1960s. But in its internal rhetoric and the names of political terminology chosen, it referred back to al Moravids, so even further than the Almohads, the predecessors of the Almohads, in fact, that were favored by the Twati assemblies when they were looking for an imam. So history kind of gets telescoped um, very routinely in this area. The Imara treated Azawad much like a Mahsa might have done. Its legitimacy was based on jihad. It provided arbitration, imposed a shift tax on traders, and took a 10% cut on ransom money, which it redistributed as welfare, quite lavishly so. It abolished borders. It set up a local measures alayyan, council of notables, and generally understood the population to be made out of pre-composed political and social groups, as the Mahsa might have done, and whose individual allegiance had to be secured, and their own example is that of the Prophet Muhammad when he in, kind of tries to start um, the conquest of the Arab Peninsula and has to deal with the powerful and less powerful tribes and notables. Um, as you can see from the quote taken from the internal correspondence of the Imara in Azawad, people were thinking both in what we would now call modern terms and traditional terms, but the kind of orientalist aspect of it, the kind of Islamist orientalism um, towards the people there, which comes out all of the time. They do use terms like the Saiba, they, they, they use terms like the Badia, the desert where nomads do not really know anything about Islam, but they can be taught. Um, actually made quite a lot of sense in northern Mali and in a sense made much more sense than kind of state rhetoric had done for a long time. And I think that is so because people do see themselves as pre-constituted as political groups. They do not see themselves as potential subjects of a state, but as members of something else. And this is, and the something else, their sovereignty, as I before we put it, um, is independent of and prior to the state. And hence this makes sense to them. What then, if anything, makes the contemporary state different from this? 
There are many answers to these questions, welfare, surveillance, breach, control, and cope. But one is so obvious that it rarely gets mentioned. Today, states all join up. There are no marshes between them anymore. The non-state is not any more the normal entailment of statehood, defining its marshes surrounding it, but it is either defined as the domestic, encompassed within the state, and only as long as it pays by the rules, we all know what happens if it doesn't, or else as a threat that has to be stamped out, often with extreme violence, especially if it is seen to have appeal beyond national borders. The world of sovereigns, as Daryl Lee writes, with international jihad in his mind, does not tolerate, I quote, substantively different cosmopolitan or transnational projects. If you have those, then all forces will get unleashed against you. As a result, a state does not become a state just by imposing itself locally, as, as we often think, but rather by being recognized internationally. States are part of state systems. Radcliffe Brown, who lived through a period when this was not yet taken for granted, he saw the end of empire, had recognized this, uh, in the same text in which he famously described the state as a, a fictional philosopher. I quote, states are merely territorial groups within a larger political system in which their relations are defined by war or its possibility, treaties and international law. A political system of this kind, such as now exists in Europe, is only one type of political system. Political theory and political practice have often suffered by reason of this type of system being set up, consciously or unconsciously, as a norm, end of quote. Today, however, the international system is the norm, and opting out is just not allowed. If you don't have a state, you will be given one, um, and if you really don't want it, you will be forced to have one. This means that even places that historically could never afford to have a state, the Kabilias and Saharas of world history, now have to have one and usually also have to pay for it. We are hence dealing with a classical hierarchical system as described by Mignon. On one level, states are opposed to states, and the people are encompassed within the state, they're part of that category. At a lower level, states are opposed to the people, or indeed sometimes to the non-state. Now, as Dumont says, in such a system, confusion arises when we start muddling levels, declare one to be more real than the other, or attempt to put everything on the same plane. And as Dumont also points out, within each level, value reversals are possible, so that we cannot extrapolate from one to the other, but need to study both and their relations. So things that can be of high value on top can be of lower value at the bottom. We just don't know. We have to have a look. As a result, there's no direct correspondence between infrastructure and superstructure. Studying top-down and bottom-up might mean studying two different things. There's no guarantee that you ever will meet in the middle or that the two objects of study indeed ever match. And this is not just another way of saying that there's no such thing as a state. The international system wields enormous power, both directly through military and financial intervention and indirectly. States can print money, most of them can anyway, and some banks can do that too, but the general idea is there. They can take out loans, hand out identity documents, buy arms, tax trade and resources, have an army, provide soldiers to the UN, control mobility across their borders and imprison people. In other words, the international recognition of states lends legitimacy to what is otherwise considered bank or credit fraud, arms trafficking, piracy, banditry, mercenary activities, roadcasting, or unlawful seizing, which is the legal term for kidnapping. In Weber's famous definition of the state as the human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory, the operational term then is not monopoly, or indeed successful, but legitimate. Beyond this, on the lower hierarchical level, 
the state is quite as varied as the status. And questions of power and encompassment have no foregone conclusion. Hence, we cannot assume that we know what states are like, or indeed what they are for, as governing, or even just the monopoly of physical force within a given territory, might in fact be quite low down on their list of priorities. This goes some way towards solving the puzzle of states that are strong and weak at the same time. If you think back to Algeria, there can be no doubt that the Algerian state is strong in terms of its ability to repress populations and prison migrants hang on in the face of popular unrest, even if they change their president, and still fear their neighbors, capture tremendous oil wealth without much or hardly any sharing, declare most of its enemies to be Islamic terrorists and treat them accordingly, um, abysmally, and to be constantly on people's minds. But it still cannot retrocede or indeed sell land locally, as we've seen, um, or carry out local elections. The state of Chad is an even more telling example. On my return from fieldwork in northern Chad in December 2012, I was contacted by the Foreign Office, who wanted to know if the Chadian president, Idris Déby Nour, he's pictured on this um, proportional poster of the Chadian government, um, was going to be the new strongman of the region. Um, Gaddafi had just been deposed in Libya in 2012, and clearly they needed to know who to talk to. This made me laugh at first. The Debbie I had glimpsed in northern Chad was a weak figure, very clever, but closer to a trickster than to a strong man. Um, in the north of the country where he himself was actually from, people said proudly that he had no influence whatsoever, that he only held on to power because he regularly imprisoned his closest family members and friends, suspecting them of coups, or else paid them off at lavish sums, and because he could always rely on the French army for support and on the French treasury to bail him out. Indeed, they did bail him out again in December. Um, his state, meanwhile, seemed a ramshackle bunch of men with guns as likely to follow his orders or not. So I, I thought this was a quite good representation of the state. And it's, it's interesting how this is actually put forward by the state itself, as this is what, what, what they are. Um, I had seen Debbie once from afar as he visited the north, surrounded by his bodyguards, handing out stacks of cash. So this is um, Central Africa. The currency is the franc CFA and the highest denomination is worth about 10 pounds. So if you want to give anybody money, you have the physical presence of the money, and then um, people emphasize that. It's, there's a certain aesthetic that, um, that relates to handing out lots of cash. Um, Debbie had been afraid to stay for the night, people said, although he then proceeded to single-handedly sack half of the high-ranking army officers in the region, accusing them of trafficking, corruption, and bourgeois tendencies, whatever that is. So Debbie's strong. In as much as he controls one of the largest armies in the Sahel and the most deadly, if you like, and he does not hesitate to turn it against his own population. The Chadian state is strong, meanwhile, in as much as it is central to the livelihoods of most people in northern Chad who rely on government salaries or handouts, most commonly in the form of military salaries. Um, there you have some statistics. In 1993, 16% of men of all ages in northern Chad were in the army, at least on paper, hence they had a salary. 53% of them in Tibesti, which is incidentally the area where most rebellions in contemporary Chad start from. Um, in addition to the military salaries, you also had very many civil servants. And indeed, statistically, there are more civil servants in northern Chad at the moment per capita than anywhere else in Europe. Um, there are not very many people in Chad, so you don't have that many, but so proportionally it's quite important, which means that every family somehow gets government money. Um, at the same time, you have expert reports quite routinely complaining that Northern Chad is under-administered, um, Sibat Ministry. And I think this is basically locals telling um, foreign experts that they should ask for more salaries and more equipment. 
Um, the state, in fact, does all sorts of things in the area, handing out cash and providing international legitimacy to armed men who then do various other things like gold mining and fighting in other countries and doing blue helmets. Um, but governing is not among them. In that sense, it is a maxim, but only a distributive one. Nobody pays taxes, but people like to take money out of it. It legitimizes the right claimed by locals to tax foreign traders, of which there are very many. They're very close to the Libyan border here. And to go fighting in Chad or beyond its borders, as UN soldiers are otherwise. It provides weaponry and transport that are essential to local livelihoods. But it also acts as a duman or guarantor or an arbiter, standing in for DN compensation payments and providing neutral spaces and funds for negotiations between other, again, pre-constituted political and social groups. Um, I think a good example of that is the prison. So Faya has the, the only, uh, the largest uh, regional prison, which dates back to colonial times. It used to be a very nasty political prison at the time. Today, it's a place where you go, if you get in trouble, if you kill somebody accidentally or wound somebody, there's a car accident, you have to run as fast as you can to prison and ask the prison guard to lock you in so nobody else can get you out. And then DR payments will be forthcoming and then you can come out. So it's a place where it's more difficult to get into than to get out. And if you suggest to any prisoners that they might not be at their, um, their freedom to actually get out when they like to, they just think you're, you're silly, you just didn't get it. Um, so you have this kind of neutral space of a prison turned um, inside out. This is a logic replicated on all levels, and in moments of national crisis, Debbie himself as ministers turn up with wads of cash and pay compensation money to settle even large-scale conflicts. So imagine 100 people, 100 herdsmen maybe got shot, and they would just turn up with their dudes and hand out the money. And that very often works as a way of um, appeasing conflict. Rather than encompassing political life in northern Chad, the state functions as one actor within it, and partly according to rules that are not its own and have little to do with national legis legislations like the rules of compensation payments and DIA payments. In a sense, then, it allows the region to continue to function internally as a Villa del Siba and externally as a rogue Maxim um, taxing anybody who comes their way, with international rather than spiritual sanction. People, meanwhile, move in and out of state and non-state categories with vertiginous speed, from rebel to soldier to minister to rebel again, very common, or internationally from blue helmet to road cutter to mercenary to Islamic terrorist, mostly mediated through large payments of cash obtained through international loans. These trajectories recall historic precedent. Movement from the Siba to the maximum back was usually also mediated by transfers of a lot of wealth. But they also matter because they're not just local. Debbie himself is, as a Chadian newspaper put it, both a democratically elected president and, and a super sultan in an area where neither of these institutions were indigenous in any case. The state then, in good segmentary fashion, is not an entity that can be considered on its own or just from the bottom up. It is always part of a wider political system, and today this means the international state system, whether we like it or not. Contemporary states are defined and maintained by the recognition by other states, which tells us something but not very much about what they are. They might at times just present a concentration, homogenization, or conjunction of political institutions that exist independently of state forms and might indeed survive them. Indeed, direct overlap between the bottom-up and the top-down might be slight. What we need then, perhaps, only half serious here, is more structuralism and less functionalism. This is, in a way, what Marshall Salins has been saying all along. Polities on his terms, cultures, never just developed locally, but within larger regions composed of political centers and the peripheries that look up to them. He calls this the cultural politics of core peripheral relations following um, Palestine, 
which means that peripheral regions often have wholly inappropriate political superstructures, or at least ambitions. Just studying them through an ethnography of everyday political practice would be a non-starter, akin perhaps to studying a cooler community on its own. But as I've tried to show throughout, in North Africa at least, we need to move away from the idea of one or various centers ordered hierarchically and linked to unilateral emulation. Political ideas, concepts, and institutions went both ways, and so did attempts at mutual encompassing. As the Nur Dinka, Schulich, and Anwak indicate, the movement is not necessarily towards statehood, might be going the other way, also were totally different, nor do such systems have to have a center or a clear boundary. Levi-Strauss's description of famous description of Amazonian America after the destructions of the great empires as a Middle Ages without a Rome is perhaps more apposite here. This is not just a formal point about the unit of analysis, but it has serious implications for political theory. If, as in the material presented here, political institutions and hence political subjectivity and rights are understood to be prior to states, they do not depend on state recognition and hence cannot be withheld by the state. Also scale matters. Remember the opposition between the one and the many uh, that I mentioned earlier. There's one sultanic maxim, and, but in multiplicity of village machasim. Exclusion from one political space implies refuge in another. Outlaws become in-laws, literally. And while banishment from the sultan's place and court might at first appear as a death sentence, it often translated into satisfactory political careers elsewhere. Uh, think Voltaire. This changes when, as is increasingly the case today, the elsewhere gets absorbed into state spaces, borders join up, and states are linked through extradition agreements that they often cannot refuse. It is in such a world that a gambin's power to exclude really becomes a matter of bare life, and political rights, despite international rhetoric to the contrary, something granted and hence also legitimately withheld by a sovereign. The current redefinition of the global SIBA as a drone zone is a terrifying reminder of this. Twenty-odd years ago, Jonathan Spencer, in this very place, concluded um, his Malinowski lecture that political anthropology as a subdiscipline had died of boredom. This was so, he said, because anthropologists refused to engage with contemporary state institutions in their own terms, seeing them as, I quote, anthropologically irrelevant and intellectually unchallenging. Since then, a whole wave of ethnographies of modern state bureaucracies or international institutions has intervened. Some of them are very good, but I'm not sure how much closer they have really brought us to understanding the state. One might argue that this is simply the wrong question to ask and that we should focus on studying actually existing states. Spencer's argument tended that way. But the problem with the solution is that the state does exist out there in the international state system that grants its legitimacy and real powers, but also in people's aspirations. It is the universal nature of the term the fact that it is not just locally created that makes it appealing in many cases and that creates space for political debate. The state in this sense is, as Greber noted, and as is neatly expressed in the Moroccan Mahsen Kamon Marmaid, civilization with taxation, um, both a predatory institution and a utopia. Yet we need to be cautious not to present it as sui generis, 
nor to dissolve all political action and ideas in the state, just because they take place in state territory, or to set up a simple opposition between the state and the local grassroots. Political institutions, including states, emerge from their own regionally specific institutional and intellectual histories, which often include larger regional or trans-regional bodies of thought, such as the Islamic tradition in the cases presented here, or indeed the custom it has long defined itself against. You can probably think of similar other ways. A narrative of local knowledge or national sovereignty cannot contain them, nor can we ever fully apprehend them. But we can try. And this, and I think an awareness of, of our own intellectual tradition as anthropologists, gives us a critical edge in a world where, as Malinowski dreaded, we are now all of and in the modern state system and its increasingly authoritarian and imperialist guise. I thank you very much for your attention.